Vegas Inc. Radio. I'm Dellen Goldberg, host of the show and editor of Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun. Over the next half hour, we'll be discussing a very generous gambler here in Las Vegas, a bail bondsman who chases after people who skip town on court, and philanthropy in the Las Vegas Valley. Um, let's start with The Giving Gambler. I'm here with reporter Ed Kmenda. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for having me. So, Marcus Mitchell, he's a pretty incredible man. He says he has his has had more of his share of luck, although he doesn't call it luck, he calls it blessings, but he's had some tragedies too, which um, mm-hmm. sort of explain his story. Tell us about Marcus. Well, Marcus Mitchell has been here uh, since the early 2000s. Uh, he came here from uh, Maryland after working with the uh, CIA for about 10 years, uh, and his mother got him the job because she was a lifer there, and he went through a divorce back home and decided he needed a change, so he moved to Las Vegas. And by the time he moved to Las Vegas, he had already had an interest in gambling because he traveled to uh, Atlantic City to play craps a lot, and he sort of fell in love with it. But he never thought that he would play professionally in any sense, especially on craps. Um, But he came here, and he got a job at a warehouse, and he uh, met a woman who he'd later marry, And she actually uh, passed away from stomach cancer uh, a few years after they married and a year and a half after they had their first child. And his life was uh, shattered, essentially. So uh, he he took some time to recover. And at the end of his recovery, he realized that he just um, he needed to give back to the community. So he quit his job at the warehouse, number one, because he couldn't work at the place where he met his wife. Uh, and, and number two, he wanted to um, start gambling uh, full time and giving uh, to give half of his winnings to charity and people who are less fortunate than he has been. So that's what he does. He gambles, he plays craps, and he collects half of his winnings and he uses those winnings to buy gift cards to Walmart or uh, Visa gift cards or uh, free pizzas or show tickets or you name it. And he's pretty much given a giving it away for free. Uh, so, yeah, I actually witnessed him do this recently, and it was quite uh, touching. He saw a sort of down-and-out kid, 21 years old, on one of the strip bridges and yeah. gave him some money. He uh, Marcus is a real big fan of um, City Center, and he, he gambles a lot at the Cosmopolitan and the Aria. And there are the uh, pedestrian bridges that go across Las Vegas Boulevard or between the Cosmo and Aria. And that is a hot spot for um, people, you know, shaking money pans or uh, musicians who are traveling looking for uh, a couple extra dollars. Uh, even people who, uh, you know, sell uh, ice cold water for a dollar, he's helped those people out as well. So there was a young man who was sitting between um, Holly, uh, Planet Hollywood and the Cosmo. Uh, and his sign said something along the lines of uh, homeless and hopeless and hungry. It's really dirty. I remember he had a uh, a tattoo of puckered lips on his neck. Uh, young kid, he was 21 years old, and he's been living under the highway uh, for the last month. Uh, and last month his mother actually passed away from breast cancer. So he's been on his own since. 
And Marcus gave him a $50 gift card to the Cosmopolitan, which inside there you could get a nice slice of pizza from Secret Pizza, which Marcus told him about, and the kid was shocked. Uh, and Marcus explained himself, and that was it. The kid got up and walked toward the, the Cosmopolitan. I mean, he was probably really hungry, so it was really something to see. That's know. incredible. Now, does he ever, and not to be the cynic here, but is he ever skeptical, I and mean, does he vet who he gives the money to? Because I think there's some people who might be more deserving than others. I mean, I, I know in Vegas there's a lot of scam artists, or he just Well, it's funny because, yeah, I thought about this. We talked about the philosophy. They call it the uh, categorical imperative. How can you justify giving money to one person and not the other? Um, he really does give to everybody. Uh, he told me some stories about sitting in a restaurant uh, and paying for a family's dinner, um, a family that, by all accounts, seemed pretty well off. Um, and his thought was, well, if I could give a rich person some money or pay it forward, that's what he likes to call it, if, if I could pay it forward to a rich family, maybe that'll start some thinking in them, you know, I don't really need help, but somebody decided to help me, so maybe I should help somebody. And it's sort of uh, going back to the, the the pedestrian overpass. You know, he told this kid Benjamin that he should pay it forward, and um, it, he really gives to everybody. That's so incredible. It seems pretty interesting. And and what's fascinating to me is he plays craps full time. You can't win craps all the time. And the way he said it was, uh, luck is something that happens uh, once or twice. Uh, but when it happens as often as it happens to me, it's a blessing, essentially. Uh, and he's lost, but he always wins more, it seems. Um, he has a uh, six-year-old kid who he's taking care of. Uh, he has an office. He's able to pay for that. If you go on his Facebook page, you'll actually see pictures of the poker chips that he uh, he cashes in. And you know, A couple weekends ago, he won $5,000 at the Cosmo. And the anecdote, which I was unable to verify, but... This isn't the first time Marcus's story has been told, you know. So I trusted it. Uh, he said that he was driving home that night and he saw a um, car pulled over on the side of the road, and it was a family who was waiting for the tow truck. So he gave them twelve hundred dollars. Wow! Uh, peeled it off his his um, his wad and um, you know said, uh, according to him, you need this more than I do. And that was it. And uh, I'll tell you what, when I saw him give the money to the, the kid uh, on the overpass, he sort of walked away. And you could tell that he was he was happy. That's uh, incredible. And both people were happy. I mean, Ben was happy and Marcus was happy. I think that it's something that he needs to do uh, in tribute to his wife. She was only 38 when she died. So, That's uh, awful. You know, he's, uh, he's doing what he can to, uh, you know. So be good. So. Well, what a legacy he's creating yeah. for her. And does he just play craps? Uh, he plays video poker too, but he loves craps. He loves. He remembers. Uh, he told me a story. Um, his earliest memories of craps was going to the uh, neighborhood friend's house and throwing dice in a cardboard box uh, back home. And he just likes the the thrill of it. And, and quite frankly, if you're a betting man, craps isn't the best game to play. Right. Um, but he actually had a really interesting system, and I've since talked to him about it, where he would go to casinos and his goal would be to um, win $20 at five casinos. Huh. If you win $20 at five casinos, um, that's $100 in a day. If you could do that three times a week, that's an extra $300. Uh, and you know, any other uh, gambler would know that could take as little as um, 
you know, five minutes at the table. Right. It could be your first bet, you know, but if you set a goal that's small enough and you hit it, you walk away. It's all about discipline. So, right. And he, that's what he does. He walks away if he's, yeah, he walks away if he loses, you know, and, you know, um, I mean, I'm sure he's lost a lot of money, but he's he's become disciplined. So, and any idea how much he gambles? I mean, is this every day, all day, or no? You know, it's sort of interesting. He uh, he doesn't gamble every day. Sometimes uh, a few weeks will go by before he gambles again. He uh, he says that he um, he just gets a feeling when he should go, and he says he's not a religious man, but uh, he sort of had a religious type epiphany. Uh, he says, uh, and he says that something tells him to go gambling. And I'm not saying it's, you know, uh, a religious thing, but he just has a feeling sort of like when the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, you know, uh, it sort of tells you something. So Interesting. And does he get enjoyment out of playing the craps or is it more of a job? I mean, does he see it as a job or? Uh... He enjoys it. He doesn't care about the money. Um, and I think that that's sort of what, uh, why he's so cool about it is he's not playing uh, to retire He's, you know, he spent uh, $40,000 probably in the last three years since doing this. And if he's giving half away his money, he's not making that much money himself. Right. Um, so he's a really happy guy. And he doesn't gamble every day. I think what he gets the most joy out of is raising his son. Um Because he's had a daughter before and that relationship sort of crumbled and he he only recently reconnected with her and she's 16 years old. So Noah, his six-year-old son, is his second chance and uh, he's trying to uh, build a really good kid out of Noah. So that's his joy. Well, that's great and he's setting a good example. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say that uh, the last thing is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of critics say that, uh, you know, if you can't make a living gambling, but uh, uh, like I said, he always just says he doesn't care about the money. It always replaces itself. And when he gets it, he puts it in a good place. So that's his story. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, great. For those of you just joining us, uh, that's reporter Ed Comenda talking about the quote-unquote giving gambler, Marcus Mitchell. Um, you're listening to Vegas Inc. Radio. We're part of Waking Up With The Sun, and we're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. Let's switch gears now to another profile you wrote, this time about a different kind of guy, um, a bail bondsman. Mm -hmm. And I I think this is really interesting. I mean, it's a tough, burly job, but uh, John, who you interviewed, is, by all accounts, a pretty nice guy. Yeah, John Foster is one of the most open and... uh uh, funny guys I've met since coming to Las Vegas. Uh, his job is to basically stake money for people who are in jail uh, for their bail to get out, and those people have to pay him back um, and show up to court where the bond is often exonerated or dissolved, to put it more simply. Um, but uh, he, uh, yeah, he's a really nice guy. I mean, he has a wife. Uh, he has toys, you know, cars and. Uh, jet skis and things like this and he um but his job is really sort of um scary to be honest i mean when i first met him i had heard stories of bill bondsman having weapons uh but when i get in there he welcomed me to sit in the desk next to him and i look down and i see that there's a loaded 38 special sitting right next to his leg and we got to talking about it and one thing that he said to me was um there's not a day that goes by that he's not afraid that someone's going to put a gun to his head the people that they deal with, although most of them are first-time offenders, um, 
there are some people that have, you know, you can't trust them. <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds terrible, but you're dealing with a, uh, a, a criminal sector of the city. Yeah, I'm sure there's um, good people that make mistakes, and then there's not so good people. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of DUIs. There's a lot of domestic uh, violence charges that he deals with. But he also deals with drug possession and, um, you know, uh, prostitution every so often. Uh, not not so much anymore because uh, his experience has taught him that prostitutes often don't uh, show up to court. So he doesn't uh, he doesn't mess with that very often. But it's a very interesting guy. Absolutely. Now, bail bonds in Las Vegas, um, back in the day, he's been doing this about 20 years, but it used to be a pretty niche industry, just a handful, and now it's much, much bigger than that. Yeah, it's much, much bigger. Um, When he started in the early 90s, he recalls um, something like eight shops in town, and now there is something like 65 listed in the yellow pages. Um, and his philosophy is he doesn't want to know any of them. He just cares about what he does. If you start caring about the competition and not what you're doing in your own shop, that's where mistakes are made. Um, but, but it's definitely a growing market because, um, you know, if you could get enough bails, I mean, he writes himself with his uh, partner, $6 million in bails a, uh, a, uh, year and, Himself, I think he makes something like $5,000 a month. That's pretty good. Uh, which is pretty good, yeah. And um, some guys make more, um, but he's happy with where he's at. Um, some guys are still trying to, to break into the the market, but John has 20 years' experience on him, 20 years of contacts, 20 years of <laughs> doing every every job imaginable uh, as a bail bondsman. So. Well, and the, the business model is they – get a cut so they'll front you the money to get you out of jail but you're going to pay a premium when you pay it back yeah absolutely so the uh the idea is if you you go to jail you get a bond and if you call a bail bondsman you have to pay him 15 percent of that he'll put up the rest of it and then you you work to pay um the rest of it back uh, if it's not exonerated and yeah it's a pretty lucrative business and the thing is if if a bail bondsman bails you out and you skip court, the bail bondsman is now reliable for the uh, full uh, amount of that bail. Uh, he told stories about uh, the biggest bail he's had to repay uh, was $27,000, and that happened at the same amount on three separate occasions. The first thing that you want to do as a bail bondsman is try to rearrest that guy right? Uh, because that's a lot of money that you're liable for now. And, and John doesn't do that. I mean, I think Dog the Bounty Hunter, he doesn't go out and get these guys. Well, John used to do that. Um, it, you're, that job is is called skip tracing, and a skip is basically someone who skips courts or someone who skips uh, payments because a bail bondsman can rearrest somebody if there's good cause. Well, if you skip payments for six months, that's good cause to believe that you might not show up to court. So you could go find them. And... Um, uh, they have a, a skip tracer on staff that they use every so often to uh, to rein somebody in and, and bring to jail. And it, it involves everything you imagine in the movies, um, not as often or probably as glitzy, but um, the surveillance, you know, the constant phone calls to pressure, uh, more surveillance, and then sometimes you, you know, knock on doors and chase people, so... And that's what ultimately got John out of that gig is he hurt himself and 
decided he was over it. Yeah, when he was when he was younger, he had a um, he was enamored with the uh, with the, the the bounty hunting. He was he loved the thrill of chasing people, and that's one of the stigmas of bail bondsmen, uh, which a lot of them don't have very good reputations because people equate them with with cowboys, and you know Metro Police has that too. You know you hear stories about this and. Um, and he, uh, it's one of those justice jobs. But he, uh, when he was younger, he went on a skip and he got to chasing a guy and, you know, the guy jumped the fence and he grabbed him and he got all hair and belt loops is what he said. But in the process, he ran both of his knees into a brick wall. So he had Ooh. like a bubble of water on one and the other. He, he was messed up for, for years afterward and it just wasn't worth it, you know. And that house, he says, later exploded in a... Uh, when a, when a meth lab caught fire. So just to kind of give an idea of the people uh, he sometimes deals with. So, Well, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, anybody who wants to read about John and any of the other stories that Ed's been covering can check him out on VegasInc.com or TheLasVegasSun.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Ed. Thanks. You're listening to Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up With The Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. Joining us now is Vegas Inc. reporter Eli Siegel. Welcome, Eli. Hi, Dylan. Um, so we've got a couple really interesting stories to talk about. Uh, the first is a look at nonprofits and philanthropy in the Valley. Um, that's been our theme for Vegas Inc. this month. And you had a really interesting story about while some people might have the best intentions, they might not always have the know-how to go about running a nonprofit correctly. Right. Yeah, that, that's the general consensus I, I got when I spoke with, uh, you know, some attorneys and accountants who, who work with nonprofits here in the Valley is that uh, a, a lot of times, not, not always, obviously, but a lot of times what you find is that you get people who want to start a nonprofit because they're very passionate about a cause. They might want to feed the homeless. They might want to, you know, rescue stray dogs or, or whatever, you know, pick, pick a topic, but they don't know how to run A, a business and B, a nonprofit Specific, you know, more specifically, a nonprofit because that, that's it's it's quite different from running a a for profit private company. You have a you know a, a lot of uh, filing requirements with the IRS, a lot of a lot of disclosure requirements. Uh, it's, it's it's quite a process, and you have a board of directors, and that's your account that you have to answer to, and there's fundraising, and there's it's a whole different thing. And that's because some of the benefits of running a nonprofit, you get tax exempt status, you get you know exceptions that a for profit business doesn't, but you have to prove yourself to right. be worthy of such exemptions. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and you have to keep showing the IRS every year on your tax forms, your they call them a nine ninety. That uh, that you're still eligible, or actually, no, that doesn't mean you're still eligible. But you, these, this, that's one of the requirements is you have to is you have to keep filing these these forms. So, no, I, I would imagine, and you reported that it's it's mostly the smaller um, nonprofits that have more issues with these kind of things. Yes, that that's absolutely right, and that that was what I kept hearing from people is that it's the it's the really small groups. They might have only one or two people running, and maybe just one, and they don't really raise a lot of money. Sometimes they run it out of their house, and frankly, they might try for a couple of years to run a nonprofit, and then they just stop, and they stop filing their required paperwork each year, and then eventually they show up in this IRS database database uh, having been stripped of their tax exempt uh, privileges, and over the last. Two and a half years since 2011, there have been literally uh, 1,100 nonprofits around Nevada that have had their tax exempt status yanked right right from under their feet from the IRS. And a lot of these cases, these groups don't even exist. 
their you know little league organizations, obscure religious groups, and, and other you know fraternity organizations and uh, social clubs and, and things like that. I mean, groups that unless you're involved with it, you, you'll you'll have never heard of. Uh, and they're the that's the majority of groups that are losing their tax exempt status. Now, just to be clear, I mean, I'm guessing the vast vast majority of these people are not out to scam the government right. or their fleece their clients. Um, they just make honest mistakes or out of ignorance or you know, they they just don't know what they're doing. Right. That that's that's what I kept hearing too, is that a lot of times these mistakes come from inexperience, just uh, and they there are questions that should come up that they don't even know to ask. Uh, there's there are filing requirements that they don't even know exist. And a lot of it is because these people have never run a nonprofit before. They've never run a business before. It's a whole. It's an entirely new thing. And, and a lot of times, people think that, oh, if I'm really devoted to this cause, I can just start a nonprofit and, and save the world. But that's. It, it's really a lot more complicated than that. Right. That being said, in a, a handful, small percentage of cases, there is fraud and theft, and board members take off with you know money from the coffers right. or cook the books and. Yeah, nonprofit fraud is, it certainly doesn't happen with, you know, it's certainly not with the majority of groups, but but it does happen. And, it you know, nationally, it's a pretty big problem. I mean, there was a report that I came across from 2007 that said, you know, the year before in 06, you know, nonprofits lost $40 billion to, to theft and, you know, and other, and other kinds of fraud. And just kind of a startling figure when you think about it. And a lot of times that theft is committed by the people who run these groups. They essentially set up their nonprofits. And again, this is you know undoubtedly a minority of the organizations, but some people do set up their nonprofits basically just as a front to steal money. And they get grants from the government. They collect donations when they say that they're going to help a cause. And then they just run away. They, they take off with the cash. And, and it happens. I talked to an accountant who's been working with uh, nonprofits for a long time here in Vegas. And she, she said she sees it all the time. It happen, It's far more common than people might think. That's incredible. Yeah, it's it's really it's 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 quite unfortunate. And like a lot of things here in Nevada, we have loose laws, and we are certainly not at the forefront of um, trying to curb these thefts or frauds. Yeah, well, there, there's very little regulation of nonprofits here in Nevada. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, Nevada has a lot of loose laws when it comes to businesses, a lot of loose regulations, and, and nonprofits are no different. I mean, they're as far as I can tell, there's really only one law that directly relates to nonprofits on the books, and it was just passed in May, and it doesn't even take effect until January of next year. Uh, there, there was a big investigative report uh, out of Florida by the Tampa Bay Times and Center, Center for Investigative Reporting and CNN, and they, they worked on a big project for a year, and part of their project was looking at regulation around the country. And what they found was that Nevada is one of 10 states nationwide that, that literally has no regulations, for, or at least among you know the, the examples that they were looking at, uh, no regulations of, of charities, of, of 501c3 charities, which is the most common type of nonprofit that people think of. And it's just, they just don't have it. Other states have you know, registrations, they have required audits, they post online uh, you know, databases of uh, disciplinary actions that are taken by the state against the nonprofits, and Nevada has none of those. And so the only thing that's happened is that in late May, as, you know, as, as, I was, as we're talking about here, uh, you know, Governor Sandoval signed a law that really only requires nonprofits to disclose with the state 
financial information that they're already reporting publicly to the IRS. So it's basically just kind of a copy and paste job that they take from their from their 990 forms to put on their incorporation filing. So it's a you know it's it's a very small step towards towards more scrutiny. It's it's something you know it's better than right. nothing. But and and the idea is to give donors a better idea of who's asking them for their money. And so this way you can go to the Secretary of State's website, you get some basic information on their financials and who they are and where they're based out of and that sort of thing. So that's that's the that's the idea behind it. Well, that's good for consumers. So I guess the the takeaway is beware who you give to, make sure you do your research and if you oh, yeah. want to do good, um find out what you need to do to do it right. Absolutely. And and for donors in particular, you know, there there is a lot of information about nonprofits out there. It's very easy to research these groups because their tax forms where they disclose their whole balance sheet is, you know, if if it's a nonprofit of any decent size, they have to file these publicly available tax forms. And you can go online. There's a great website called GuideStar that compiles all the data, all the financial data of nonprofits around the country. And you can download this stuff for free and you can, you know, you can inspect their books. And really see where your money's going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's great. Well, let's switch gears. Um to help of a different kind. Uh, this is help for homeowners that are underwater, but it's also a business model that people are cashing in on. Um, there's a company called Housing Angels out of Arizona that's uh, moving into the valley. And essentially, they help people short sell their homes, rent it back, and then, in theory, buy it back. Yeah. So Dave Dietzik is the guy who's running this program. And like you said, he's a he's a real estate broker out of Arizona. And he's been running this program that he calls Housing Angels for the last three years over there in Arizona. And they've I think they've closed more than 1,000 deals is what he had told me. And basically what they do is exactly what you said, is that they find underwater homeowners they match them up with investors as buyers. They short sale, and Dave is the broker. He and his group are, are they, they invest in some of the properties, but for the most part, they're just brokers. And they short sale, short sell, rather, they short sell the house to the investors. The investors lease it right back to them and give them an option to buy. And it's certainly not a cheap program. I mean, it, it does cost you a little bit because if you buy within the first two years, you pay 20% above what the investor paid to buy your underwater house. If you wait till the third or fourth year, that price goes up by 10%. So you are looking, I mean, it's it's certainly not a cheap program, but it can, if it works out, it can, you can stay in your house and his investors make a profit. That's that's kind of the idea. Absolutely. And the, the sort of fly in the ointment were arm's length agreements that right. Most, you know, the I would say the vast majority of banks uh, required people to sell or sign when they were selling. Now those are going out the window, so this opens the door for this business. Yeah, more or less. So what the deal in the valley and and, all, and around the country too is that when you want to short sell your house, the banks oftentimes they don't have to, but they often require you to sign like what you said a, a, an arm's length agreement, which is basically a promise that. You didn't know the buyer, who's this, you know whoever's buying your house through the short sale, is that you two didn't know each other before this deal came about. <coughs> Excuse me, and that also you have no pre-existing arrangement for the buyer to lease your house back to you or to sell it back to you. And again, banks don't have to do this; they're not required by law, but they're increasingly requiring this. You know, this part of the deal, they're requiring this uh, document to be signed, this arm's length agreement. Now, if you lie 
about it and you let's say you find an investor and you've got some some deal to lease it back from him or whatever and you lie to the bank on your arm's length agreement that's fraud and you can actually go to jail for it and you can be prosecuted uh, criminally for it uh if you don't lie about it then you're fine and, and sometimes they don't require you to sign in so you can do whatever you want with the house but so dave's program depends basically entirely on the willingness of banks to forego this arm's length agreement and they have to be willing to to say, you know what, it's okay. We're okay with the investors leasing it back to you and selling it back to you. Now, as you indicated, there's a new law that kicks in uh, at the end, towards the end of this year, I think in October, that says essentially banks are not banks cannot force you to sign an arm's length agreement. Uh, basically, you know, if if banks are holding up the deal to say, well, we're only we'll only do the short sale if you sign the arm's length. Essentially, they can't do that anymore. Uh, you now you might agree to it and, and be okay with it, but uh, but they should help Dave's business a lot because these arm's length, arms length agreements probably won't be nearly as common as they are now. Absolutely. Well, this will be interesting to see what impact it has on, uh, you know, the inventory in Nevada and helping people keep in their homes and yeah. make some money for some investors. Yeah, it sure looks that way. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Eli. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. If you want to find out more about Housing Angels or Philanthropy in Nevada, you can follow Eli's coverage and all our coverage at VegasInc.com and LasVegasSun.com. You're listening to Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up With The Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. I'm your host, Dellen Goldsberg, business editor of Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun. Thanks to Steven Zeller, our producer, and the entire KUNV team. And thanks to you for listening. Enjoy your day. 